your heads with me in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for every good and perfect gift. Lord, we thank you for this day, a new day that you've given to us. Father, help us as we jump into this next hour to open our hearts to receive your love, open our minds to receive your truth, and help us to receive your grace. We love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't think I need to convince anyone about the relevancy of this topic of homosexuality. And I think that just as looking at our, the news and the media, we know that this is not a topic that's going to be going away anytime soon. So how we engage on this topic as Christians, I think is going to be a defining moment for us, good or bad. I think generally speaking, Christians, we haven't done a very good job. We have a bad reputation when it comes to how we approach not just this topic, but also people in the gay community. Uh, if you guys aren't familiar with my testimony, if, if you weren't able to make it this weekend, uh, my parents are still back at the book table. My, my book is available. That also has that study guide that I mentioned over this weekend. But as I mentioned, Christians, we don't have a good reputation at all. We, we can agree to that, right? If we ask someone who is unchurched, not a Christian, and ask, you know, ask them, what, what do you think about how Christians are doing on this, on this issue? <laughs> if we were to get a grade, what would that be? A minus B? Lower than that. There is a study that, was, that looked at young Americans and how they perceive the church. They asked these young Americans positive things. Or, you know, they gave some options that were positive. Like when you think about the church, uh, it has good values or gives hope. But there are also some negative things. They asked young Americans aged 16 to 29. And what they found through this survey was alarming. By far, the reputation of the church is extremely negative. This is how we are viewed, my friends, Christians. From the bottom, we are viewed to be confusing, not accepting, boring, insensitive, out of church, too political, old-fashioned, hypocritical, judgmental, and guess what's at the very, very top? Anti-homosexual. Look for a moment, those percentages. 91, they broke it down to those raised in the church, those not raised in the church. 91%. That's an enormous percentage. I mean, you might as well say everyone not raised in the church believe that we are anti-homosexual. What, what about our youth and young adults? We teach them, love the sin or hate the sin. According to this survey, 8 out of 10 of our own kids, our own young adults, believe that we, ourselves, are anti-homosexual. And note what it doesn't say. It doesn't say anti-homosexuality, which maybe I could understand. But to be honest, I wish we were better known for what we're for than against. That's not even what this survey showed. This survey showed that we are viewed to be against gay people. And that is wrong. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not against people. It's not against anyone. As a matter of fact, it's for people turning from their sins and turning to Jesus, but it's still for people, and so should we. 
But unfortunately, people's perception is their reality. So what can we do to recognize this, but also know that we're working against this, but hopefully work and move forward? There's many ways that I could approach this. A Christian response to homosexuality. I could approach this politically, looking at what's going on in public policy and in government. I could focus and and make this kind of feeding more into the culture war that's raging not only in our country but around the world on this topic of homosexuality. I could approach this issue more as a social science issue, psychological, sociologically, etc. Or I think a better way, especially if it's a Christian response, is to use as our foundation the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that the gospel should guide us in everything that we say or do. The gospel should guide us in all of our relationships. So how can we have a more gospel-centered Christian response to not just this issue? I don't like to even talk about this as an issue. It's about people. How do we better engage our friends and loved ones in the gay community? Well, there's many suggestions, and I'm going to kind of, kind of center them around four pillars, four points. And I have to be honest that many of these are going to be a bit of a critique. I may be critical against the gay affirming view and and some of those perceptions of maybe liberal Christianity. But I'm not going to give us a complete free pass. I think if there's places where we need to improve, I think that we need to improve. So I'm going to give a little bit. Some of these are going to be criticisms, construction criticisms. So hopefully you guys are confident enough in your spirituality to take a little bit of criticism tonight. Is that okay? All right. So first, first step, we need to be convicted. We need to be convicted about our own sin. We need to be convicted, you know, you know, before we point out other people's sin, are we serious about our own sin? Because when I lived as a gay man, I felt Christians were telling me that somehow gays and lesbians deserved a hotter place in hell. That Jesus had to hang on the cross a little bit longer for gays and lesbians. Although same-sex sex is sin, but it's not the worst sin. But often we treat it like that, just in the way that we talk about it. Just in the way that we, the, the tone that we have. Talk about the gay people, you know, or the gay community, not as our friends, but those people. It's not helpful to talk about those people when we're trying to share the gospel with our friends. So just the tone and, and, and the way that we communicate about it, and almost giving the impression that we're elevating this above all other sins. And though true, the Bible, yes, does talk about this as an abomination, But if we were to read the whole Bible, and I read and believe the whole Bible, Proverbs 6 says there are six things the Lord hates and seven that are abomination, such as lying, cheating, causing dissension. So when was the last time that your friend was a little bit prideful and you told him or her, you are abomination? Maybe we should. And then we wouldn't take so lightly sins that I think sometimes we trivialize. So, and and I know that for majority of you in this room, you don't personally know what it's like to experience attractions to the same sex. And though you might not, but you might not even know of people who are very conservative in their faith. And to think about people who are gay or to even think about two men together or two women together, they think that's just gross. 
You see, that's unnatural. As if we can have natural sins and unnatural sins. It's all sin. Or they say that's disgusting to the point where they even look down upon our friends in the gay community. Or they look down upon even our brothers and sisters who might experience same-sex attractions but are living faithful. And I think what I want to tell those people is that that feeling of disgust that you might have should really be a reminder for us that it is just a fraction of what God feels when he looks at your sin. Because our sin is just as odious in God's eyes, and maybe even more, maybe even more, because we know better and have the Holy Spirit abiding in us. Because at the end of the day, I want to lead people to Jesus. But that's never done through a holier-than-thou attitude. I mean, have you ever met anyone who came to Christ through a holier-than-thou attitude? Oh, I came to Jesus. This old lady, she was so pompous. Never, really. I mean, you know, never. It's gentleness, humility, convicted about our own sin. So first, let us be convicted about our, our own sin before we're busy pointing out someone else's sin. And, and, and I need to say a quick note here because I think there's this impression today on, on the other side of this pendulum that um, people say, well, my job is not to judge. Yes, there is one judge. We never judge what is right or wrong. We can't change. If God says something is right or wrong, we can't change that. God is the one that determines that. But what people really mean is not that, no, we're determining person of saying what is right or wrong, but when people say, I'm not called to judge, what they also mean is that I'm not ever going to point out that, you know, God's truth and say that, you know, this is sin in love. They, they won't even do that. And I think that's not biblical. Because when they go to that one verse in the Gospels where Jesus says, do not judge, they're reading it out of context. Because what does it say right after that? With the measure that you judge, you will be judged. In other words, he's not saying don't ever judge. There's no that word ever. It says judge. I mean, do not judge. But what Jesus says is don't judge unfairly. With the measure that you judge, in other words, judge. But the measure that you judge with, because remember, they, if you know, back in the ancient times, they didn't have a standard of weight. I mean, from what I hear in the, here in the U.S., there's actually like a department that like just makes sure all weights are the same. They didn't have that back then, so you could go to the marketplace and you could have, uh, you know, they didn't use pounds back then, but a certain weight, and it would be off. It would be less than a true pound, and so what they're giving you is not a true pound. And so with the measure that you measure, you will be measured. The, 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 how you judge others, you will be judged. So judge fairly. As a matter of fact, if you have to read the whole Bible, which again, I, I believe the whole Bible. You see, even in the New Testament, Paul even saying in 1 Corinthians, don't go to secular people to judge. Aren't there people among us that can judge? So it's not that we shouldn't ever point out someone's sin. First, we need to know when is the right time. We shouldn't always be reminding them of it. Do it once or twice and then let it sit. But I don't, we need to do it in love, especially with unbelievers. Don't ever make that the first thing that you want to talk to them, talk to them about. Your next door neighbor who just moves over and you know they're living, he's living with his girlfriend. The first thing you don't, you, you don't want to do is bring up the fact that they're living in sin. Maybe the first thing to do is bring them up cas you know, casserole. Invite, invite them over for dinner. So anyway, I just wanted to say that because we give this false impression and we have bought into it, Christians, 
that somehow we should never point out people's sin. We should not allow that be the first thing or the second thing or the third thing or fourth thing because the first, I mean, the first thing that I want to get to is know them, build a relationship, and the most important thing that I want to share is the gospel. But that should not, but we should need to get away from the fact that we should never point out people's sin because that's not biblical. But we need to, before we do that, make sure that we are convicted about our own sin. Second, we need to be consistent. When I look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, he was so patient and compassionate toward the sinners, the tax collectors, the adulterers, the prostitute. But he had no time for the religious folks. They were hypocrites. They knew God's word, but they weren't living out God's word. They weren't extending God's loving, loving kindness and grace to others. So they were inconsistent to what they knew. And I think the sooner that we realize that we all have a bit of hypocrisy in our own human nature, the better, because then we can keep that in check. Then we can know that we need to be held accountable to that. Make sure that when we're reading God's word, that we're making sure, you know, is my life, my words, my actions lining up with God's word? And when it comes to homosexuality, I believe we have been inconsistent in three ways. First of all, regarding relationships. What's your relationship status? Are you married or are you single? And in our culture today, not only in the church, but also in the secular world, we have elevated marriage much higher than it ought to be. And there's this huge imbalance between marriage and singleness. And, and, and I hear, you know, people, you know, agreeing with that. But you might think, what does this have to do with homosexuality? A lot. Because if our message to our friends in the gay community is you need to walk away from same-sex relationships, or if our message to Christians who are wrestling through issues of sexual identity is you need to resist those attractions, don't act upon them. Well, what does that mean for most? Be single for a period in your life, if not the rest of your life. And if so, do we have a healthy place for singles to thrive in Christian community today? Not so much. Singles feel like second-class citizens. Singles feel like projects to be fixed to the problem of singleness. Really. <laughs> Think about it. I mean, that's why we, that's why we call, I want to fix you up with someone. <laughs> Words have meaning. It's subtle, but it's true. We, you know, singles, you know, they're... They, they do not feel like they fit in. We have so much elevated, and, and we have almost equated singleness with loneliness. One of the big pushbacks that I get from my gay friends is that they say, what you're saying is that your God wants me to be lonely for the rest of my life. And what they're doing is they're equating singleness with loneliness. But it's not the same thing. Singleness is not equated to loneliness because I know some people who are married and they're still miserably lonely. Because you know what's worse, being single and, and, uh, and lonely? Is being in a bad marriage and lonely. So, you know, we, it's, singleness is not equated to loneliness, but we give this impression that marriage is just bliss and happiness. Think back when you were, when you were kids. And your teachers would read you fairy tales. How do all fairy tales end? Well, first they get married and then they live happily ever after. I mean, you get the end. No more story to tell here. You know, you get the 10-year checkup or the 20-year checkup. Hopefully, they're still living happily ever after. But you know what the real lesson is? It's not marriage that should bring you ultimate contentment. 
it is the Lord Jesus Christ who should bring you ultimate contentment first, whether you're married or whether you're single. We have so much, you know, idolized marriage. And, and this is why, you know, if you look at the, the handouts that I have, I wrote this with my good friend, Rosaria Butterfield. She lived as a, a, a former lesbian, and she um, was a tenured English professor. She, she, her PhD was studied queer theory and feminism, and part of her research was to uh, study the religious right. So she thought, I got to read the Bible. It rocked her world. She became a believer. Anyway, we wrote this together uh, after June 26th uh, of last year when the Supreme Court made that historic decision legalizing same-sex marriage in all 50 states. Uh, my friend Rosaria and I wrote this response. We saw on one side people celebrating marriage equality. On the other side, people you know, saying this is what traditional marriage is. And what we believed was we saw that both sides were focusing on the wrong thing. That's why we wrote this. We called it something greater than marriage. And there was something very interesting that we were, in a sense, responding to. The majority opinion written by Justice Kennedy, a Supreme Court justice, he wrote at the very end, you can even read it online, in, the, in his last paragraph, he wrote, not, not the last paragraph here, but online, the last paragraph of his majority opinion, he wrote, marriage is the highest ideal of love. Say that again. He said, he wrote, marriage is the highest ideal of love. Most people would agree with that. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, we should not agree with that. Marriage is good. Don't get me wrong. Marriage is actually even very good. But it is not the ideal. God is. God is alone. Nothing come close to that. Nothing by far. The greatest expression of love is not marriage. The greatest expression of love is the Lord Jesus Christ putting his hands on the cross and dying for you. That, my friends, is love. And nothing is greater than that. So that's why we, we wrote it, something greater than marriage. You know, you see the uh, equality sign that, of, of the marriage, and, and I kind of created this. Instead of equality, equal sign, it's greater than sign. Because something is greater than marriage. And that should be our message. And, and you know, don't get me wrong, I'm not dissing marriage. Yes, I'm 45 years old, I'm single, and I have a passion to help the church to have a better view of singleness. But I'm not dissing marriage. I believe that as Christians, as the body of Christ, we have to continue to lift up the, gift of mar the, the beauty and the gift of marriage. But I think we have done that at the expense of singleness. So now singleness is at best a consolation prize. I'm so sorry you're single. I'm, you know, it's that unbearable burden that people have to go through. And I, I realize that because I'm single. And I know singleness is not easy. But there are some blessings that come with it. And from what I hear, marriage has some challenges. <laughs> but there are also some great blessings as well then why is it that we only focus upon the enormous blessings of marriage and the enormous challenge of singleness? You have to see that is starkly inconsistent. Not even inconsistent, but it's unbiblical. You know, and, and I, I know that, you know, everyone can all agree that marriage is a gift. But when it comes to singleness, you know, they're, they're, I, I, don't, I, don't, 
I don't know if I can say that as a gift. Actually, I have a friend who was a missionary in China. She uh, went to China for five years, came back. She was single going there, single coming back. And when she was back here on furlough in the U.S., she saw several of her friends. And when she saw her friends, they all asked her similar questions. Are you dating anyone? Do you have anyone special in her life? And she's like, no, I don't. Do you know what some of her friends said to her? Can I pray for you? It was as if she had cancer. Singleness is not cancer. It is not a curse. But we treat it like that. We truly believe it is that unbearable burden. But what does the word of God say? We must always come back to God's word. Do you know Paul spends an entire chapter in 1 Corinthians 7 talking about not only marriage but also singleness. And in this chapter he says that not only singleness is good in verse 1 of chapter 7. But in verse 7 he says that it's a gift. It's a gift. And, and I know that majority of people, you know, will say marriage is a gift. When it comes to singleness, they don't say that it's a gift. Instead, you know what they say? Whew, it's a calling, seriously. You know, you got to be really called to be single. You have to be either Superman or Wonder Woman to be single, which I don't know if you've noticed, but most superheroes are single. So you have to have superhuman powers just to be single. And the majority of my friends... Christian friends, they're married, and they're happily married, but they tell me a secret about marriage, that marriage takes work. Giving of yourselves, loving unconditionally, it's not easy. Paul even goes on and tells us, husbands, lay your life down for your wives. How's that coming along? Lay your life down for your wives. Amen, ladies? Amen? So I don't know what husband that doesn't struggle with that impossible calling. So do you know what I say, tongue-in-cheek? I say marriage. Ooh, that's a calling, seriously. <laughs> marriage, you know, singleness, that's a gift. I don't have to lay my life down for anyone yet. But I'm not dissing marriage. I'm just looking at the full counsel of God and recognizing that godly marriage and godly singleness are two sides of the same coin. We should no longer only emphasize one at the detriment of the other. Because let me tell you what we have been doing is only emphasizing one, at the expense of the other. And what that communicates is marriage is where it's all at and singleness, not so much. So we are not giving people, our youth, our young adults, the gay community, anyone, another viable option other than marriage. I don't even know if we're ready to address this issue of sexual identity, the issue of homosexuality, until we first reclaim singleness. I think one of the reasons why we might be in this kind of whole confusion today about marriage might be this, you know, because I've always wondered, how in the world did marriage, which is a covenant between two people, it's a covenant, become a right? Covenant and a right, they're different. Covenant is not a right. A covenant is a covenant. So how in the world did this marriage, a covenant, become a right? I think one of the reasons is because we have denigrated singleness so much that singleness is a curse. And no one should ever be forced to be single or ever deserve to be single. And if that were true, which it is today, marriage is a right. If singleness is unfair and no one should ever deserve to be single, then marriage must be a right. I also think the other thing is we've misunderstood what Paul is talking about, gift. 
Because when we talk about gifts, I mean, one of the main things that I hear pushback from people is that, okay, that's fine, but I didn't choose that gift. I don't want that gift. So therefore, I don't have it. We must understand what Paul is talking about here. It's gift. That idea of gift, like a present, you know, like happy birthday, I give you a present. That word for present in the Greek is the Greek word doron. That's not the word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 7. Instead, he, he uses a different word, and it's the Greek word charisma, which more literally means spiritual gift. Not present, but spiritual gift. So you might think, what's the significance of that? First, are spiritual gifts chosen by the individual? Do I get to choose my spiritual gift? Like, let's say I want the gift of healing. I want it as more than anything else. Just because I want it, does that mean that I have it? No. I mean, it could, but not necessarily. I could want something, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter what I want, what I desire, or even, you know, anything. How do I get a gift? God is the only one that dispenses gifts. He's the one that chooses. Okay, so then, then that helped. I, I didn't choose. I don't choose gifts. But what if I don't want a gift? Like, I don't want the gift of te teaching. Does that mean that I don't have it? Let's just say one of the spiritual gifts is prophecy. How about the prophets of old? Did all of them all want their gift? Ask Jonah, right? I mean, even Moses. He's like, take my brother. So just because you don't want a gift does not mean you don't have it. And if God gives it to you, guess what? There are consequences for you not exercising those gifts, like Jonah. Okay, so gifts aren't chosen by me. If I don't want a gift, that doesn't necessarily mean I don't have it. Well, then what's the purpose of a spiritual gift? Are, are, is the purpose of a spiritual gift to make me happy? Because what's the, what's the purpose of a present? Like if I were to give you a Christmas present, I don't want to give something that you don't like, right? That wouldn't really be a good present. And if you got a present that you didn't like, you could give it away. You could get rid of it. But what's the purpose of a spiritual gift? Is it to make me happy? Is that the main reason? No. I mean, hopefully it will make you happy, but that's not the main reason why God gives you those gifts. What's the purpose of spiritual gifts? Paul actually tells us in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12. The purpose of a spiritual gift is for the edification of the body of Christ. So why is there the spiritual gift of teaching? It's for the church. Why is there the gift of healing? For the church. And why is there the spiritual gift of singleness? For the church. So for those of us who are single, we need you. We need you. We can't even be the body of Christ without you being a part of the body of Christ. 
exercising your gift as one of the members of the body. And for the rest of us that are not single, I believe we need to repent. Repent of not only not allowing our single brothers and sisters and celebrating their spiritual gift, but in essence, almost squashing it to the detriment of the church. We have to get this right. If we want to better engage on this issue, not just of sexual identity, just on sexuality in general, sexual brokenness, we need to, we need to reclaim the beauty and gift of singleness. Second, we need to be consistent regarding sexuality. What is God's standard for sexuality? Is it heterosexuality? I, I often hear people that are kind of walking with others that are wrestling through issues of sexual identity or in same-sex attraction. And I hear them say things like, my goal with this person, guy or girl, is to help them pursue their heterosexual potential. So one thing that I do whenever I teach with my students is I want to help them think critically and biblically. Just like the Bereans did. When the Bereans, they listened to the apostles in Acts, did they take just everything wholeheartedly? No, what did they do? They went back and studied God's word for themselves. They listened, they took notes, but they went back and studied for themselves. They were thinking biblically and critically. We need to do the same thing. So, heterosexuality, or helping someone pursue their heterosexual potential. Let's break that down. We need to define it first. So let's define heterosexuality. That means being attracted to someone of the opposite sex or being sexually intimate with someone of the opposite sex. That's a pretty broad definition. Within that broad definition, I could be a man and I slept with 50 women last month. That could be considered heterosexuality, right? Or I could even be a married man and I'm cheating on my wife with another woman. That could also be considered heterosexuality. Or I could be a single man. And I've been living with my girlfriend for the past 10 years. We actually even have a few kids together, but we're not married. And and we're even monogamous. That could also be considered heterosexuality. Those three scenarios that I gave you, and I could give you more, are all sinful but still heterosexual. God would never use a category that would include so much sin. And I know you might be thinking right now, well, what about marriage? True, marriage is one example within that broad definition of heterosexuality that God would allow, but everything outside of marriage, still under the umbrella of heterosexuality, is sin. So God wouldn't use that category of, it's a, besides, it's a man-made category. It's not a biblical category. You'll never find the word heterosexual in the Bible or heterosexuality, even the concept. So if it's not heterosexuality, it's not homosexuality, then what is it that God is calling us to in regards to our sexuality? Holy sexuality. And what is holy sexuality? When I read through the full counsel of God, there is only two options for us to live out our sexuality. For everyone, two options. One, if you're married, complete faithfulness to your spouse. And today, after last year, we need to clarify, the Bible only clarifies that it's someone of the opposite sex. Or two, if you're not married and you're single, then complete faithfulness through abstinence. So if you're married, complete faithfulness to your spouse of the opposite sex. Two, if you're single, complete faithfulness through abstinence. Only two options. 
Faithfulness in marriage, chastity and singleness. And there's no term for those two options. So I had to create a term, and I call it holy sexuality. And what I like about that is this applies to everyone. Everyone in this room needs to pursue holiness. Whether you're a man or a woman, whether you have heterosexual feelings or homosexual feelings, we all need to pursue holiness. There's no other standard for another group of people. We, this is the same for everyone. And I know some of you might be thinking, okay, that's fine, but then people who are gay or people who have same-sex attractions only have one option, that's to be single for the rest of their life. Not necessarily so. I have a friend that helps illustrate this point. He lived as a gay man for many years, like myself. He comes to Christ. He, he stops pursuing gay relationships. And he had no interest in girls growing up, no interest in girls even after coming to Christ. So he thought, I'm just going to be single for the rest of his life. He was okay with that. He was also called to ministry. He was called to actually to be a youth pastor. And the youth leaders were like his family. They were his accountability group, support group. There was one young uh, youth worker that he became really close friends with. She also was a new, fairly new Christian. She came from a broken past, nothing to do with uh, homosexuality, but she, like being any, like any other girl who was not a Christian, had many, many boyfriends, and she was sexually intimate with them. Some of them were very toxic relationships. He had a few abortions as well, and so she thought when she come to, came to Christ, she thought, I'm kind of done dating guys because she really wanted to focus on a relationship with God. So the two of them became really close. And there wasn't that weirdness that happens between a guy and a girl. You know, does he like me? Does she like me? Because he knew that she didn't really want to date, and she knew that he didn't, she didn't like girls. <laughs> so after time of just being like best buddies, he began noticing some things about her that he never noticed before in girls. Her hair. She smelled good. And she had curves. <laughs> He says, puberty is hard going through once, try going through puberty twice. <laughs> he got up enough courage, asked her out on a date, and after some dating, he asked her to marry him. And on their wedding night, he told his new bride, he said, honey, I cannot explain this. I'm not attracted to any other women. I'm only attracted to you. That is holy sexuality. For a man to get married to a woman... He does not need to be attracted to a lot of women. For a man to marry another woman, he doesn't need to be even attracted to a few women. For a man should marry a woman, he just needs to be attracted to one woman. Not heterosexuality, not homosexuality, but holy sexuality. Third, we need to be consistent regarding change. What does change look like? Does change mean go to gain, go to gate astray? No. Well, what about temptation? So if someone is still having temptations or those feelings or attractions or whatever, does that mean they haven't been changed? You know, so if someone, you know, that you know that they, they still might be struggling with those temptations, does that mean that they haven't really truly been transformed? Well, if so, do we apply that principle to anything else? Let's say I have a friend who was a drunk, comes to Christ, stops drinking. But when you talk to him, he still admits that he still has urges to drink. But he doesn't. Would we tell him, you have not been changed. You need, we need to lay some hands on you. You need, you, need to be, you need some deliverance. No, I think that the manifestation of grace is more evident in his life because he says no to his flesh and says yes to God. 
So that's why change is not the absence of temptations. God does not promise you, come to Jesus and you'll never be tempted with sin again. No, that's not the way it goes. Jesus, remember, Jesus himself was tempted, right? He was tempted for 40 days. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was wrestling. I mean, he, he was tempted. And so what makes it think that we won't be tempted? We will be tempted even after coming to Christ. But the thing is, when you come to Christ, is you're no longer in bondage to your temptations. You have the freedom, the ability to be holy, not on your own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to our flesh, no to temptations, and say yes to God. That is what changes, even in the midst of temptations. And, and I know that, that we have also kind of fallen into this, this paradigm. That, that we have not made that our sin nature the main problem. We have made it another problem. That's why the change has focused so much upon this orientation change. Where, where we have believed that we have to help people to, to, to stop being gay, which we should never use those words anymore, especially among Christians. Be gay. Be straight, be homosexual. Those aren't correct terminology. They don't, don't define people. They define our attractions, our feelings, our actions. You know, so like we have bought in so much of this, you know, the homosexual, heterosexual paradigm, but that's not really a biblical paradigm. It's are you holy or are you not? That's biblical. And holy doesn't mean that you're not tempted. Because how many of you guys have ever heard... Um, you know, from others or, or heard on, you know, whether through reading or whether on the radio, that homosexuality is primarily due to absentee father, dominant mother, or abuse in one's childhood. How many of you guys have heard that before? Yeah, a lot of us have. And I think one of the main problems is when we do that, we have made the wrong diagnosis. When you go to a doctor, why do you go to a doctor? If you're not feeling well, if you're throwing up or whatever, you're feeling you're nauseous, have a fever, you go to a doctor for, for first, you want her or him to diagnose you correctly. Is it viral? Is it bacterial? Whatever. Is it meningitis? You know, what, whatever. Because if this doctor is able to make the correct diagnosis, then what? He's able to give you the right treatment. But what happens if the doctor gives you the wrong treatment or wrong diagnosis? says it's bacterial when it's really viral and gives you some antibiotics. Are those antibiotics going to help, help, help a viral infection? No. Might, I mean, could even in some situations make you feel worse. So, correct diagnosis, correct treatment, wrong diagnosis, wrong treatment. We have, for the longest time, treated this as a disorder, as an almost psychological disorder. Sin is not a psychological disorder. Sin is sin. And also, some of you might have kids who are gay or lesbian. And you have the stigma and guilt and shame. Can I tell you? It's not your fault. You could have been the best parent in the world. Your children are still sinners. Adam and Eve 
did they not have the perfect father? Did they not have the perfect environment? They still sinned. What makes you think you can do better? You know, just as parents who have wonderful kids that are following the Lord and they're doing really well in their faith, how these parents, they can't take all the glory, right? In the same way, parents who might have wayward children, prodigals, you can't take all the blame. You don't have that much power, parents. You wish you did, but you don't. You know the job of a Christian parent? It's not to produce godly children. The job of a Christian parent is to be godly parents. Big difference. The job of a Christian parent is not to produce godly children. You don't have that much control. But your main job of of anything else is to be godly parents. So this whole idea of, of, you know, trying to place the blame upon, you know, absentee father, dominant mother, whatever. Yes, uh, be good parents. Be godly parents. I mean, when you're a godly parent, you're not going to be absent. You're going to be involved. And yes, parents, you can influence your child, but you can never prevent them from being a sinner. They have to make that decision themselves to follow Jesus or not. So this is why we have to focus away from the orientation change and focus it back upon the church. Too often when we have friends who come up to us and maybe they're wrestling things, one of the first things that we want to do is connect them to a support group. Not to say that support groups aren't bad. I think support groups are great. But the answer of, of sin is not found in a group. The answer for sin is not found on a couch sitting in someone's office. The answer for sin was found on Calvary. Jesus. We have to make the answer for sin and make everything point back to the cross and to Jesus. First, we need to be convicted about our own sin. Second, we need to be consistent in three ways regarding relationship, sexuality, and sin. Third, we need to be compassionate. You know, I've been teaching at Moody for eight years. And every year I get students that confide with me about the wrestling with issues of sexual identity. And they say things like, I've never told anyone. Sometimes they even say things like, I hate myself. I wish I was never born. I could never tell anyone. My friends, my parents will just reject me. Sometimes they even go on and say that they're wrestling with depression or even thoughts of suicide. That should move us. That we have brothers and sisters in Christ that we know that are wrestling with this all alone. That should not be. For some, this is an issue between life and death. So what can we do to be a safer place, to be wrestling with any sin? We can be open about eating disorder. We can open about pornography addiction. We can be open about this or that, even adultery. But this is one of those things that people just say, I just can't be open about. You know, we hear about the public schools having their safe places. You know the safest place in the world? Should be the church.
are we safe? And I don't know, I don't just want to be safe. Because safe just means, okay, we can all come together and we're safe and don't go anywhere. I don't want to be safe. I want our churches to be safe and redemptive. That's the difference. So how can we do that? First, expect this is present. In our own churches, in our own small groups, in our own pews, in our own families. This is something that affects people out there. Sin affects everyone. Your sin might look different from anyone else's, but not be surprised. I mean, I even hear people that say things like, you know, my best friend just came out to me. We grew up in church together, youth group. I mean, everything. I mean, he had a good home, Christian parents. He was even homeschooled. And I want to say, hold up, hold up. What you're really saying and communicating is that somehow if someone has a good home, someone has Christian parents, and they're even homeschooled, that they're somehow exempt from struggling with sin. Is that true? Okay, newsflash. I'm sensing here tonight that there is someone in this room. I believe someone in this room is actually struggling with sin. I know, I know, I don't want to alarm anyone. I'm not going to put you out, but I really, I'm sensing that. Someone here, maybe one, right? What's the body of Christ? You know, are we a group of people who've got it all together, don't have any problems? We meet once a week, we hold hands, and we sing kumbaya. Is that what we are? Is that what the church is? Or is the body of Christ a group of people who know we're broken and we're needy and we desperately need Jesus? I'll just be honest with you. I am broken and I need Jesus. Anyone else out there that relates to that at all? Let us all, hand in hand, walk together to him. Not because I can fix you. I wish I can. I can't. Not because I have all the answers. I don't. But let me tell you, I know someone who does. And his name is Jesus. So we just need to just expect, this is here, not be surprised. Second, know your position. In our culture, we need to be able to articulate what we believe. But, you know, often, you know, in our kind of hammering and hawing and not really not sure how to say, the main takeaway that people usually get is this. It's bad, don't do it. That doesn't really help people in their time of need. You know, when we're talking about any of our positions on homosexuality, you know what's the one thing I want them to take away is this. My main goal is to lead people, anyone, into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't want people to know Jesus. Demons know Jesus. It's making no difference. A deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. Why? So that they are able and willing to surrender everything to him. Everything to him. You know when Jesus pulled his disciples aside and he told them, he explained to them what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He spoke plainly, and he said, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, he must, not an option, must deny himself, pick up his cross, the gospel of Luke adds daily, and follow me. We want to skip over the first two things and just follow Jesus. We don't want to deny ourselves. We don't want to pick up our crosses daily. Following Jesus should cost us everything. 
If it hasn't, maybe you're following the wrong Jesus. Following Jesus should cost us everything. If it hasn't, maybe you're following the, the wrong Jesus. Because when you give up everything and he allows you to keep some things, guess what? Those things are no longer yours. They're all his. It's about intimacy with Christ and full surrender. Third, maybe you're here and you're, you have this friend. You've always wondered whether they're wrestling through issues of sexual identity. And you want to bring it up, ask them, so you can walk through with them. So they can kind of, you know, so they're not alone. So you're thinking, how do I bring up? How do I ask them? Don't. Imagine if someone came up to you out of the blue and said, um, are you gay? Awkward. Okay, just letting you know. Awkward. You know, do you have same-sex attractions? Awkward. But you know what you can do? Give assurance of your friendship. Tell them, I thank God for you. And I just want you to know anything you say you do won't change our friendship. When you say that, that creates safety, that fosters transparency, that creates a safe place and invites them in. As a matter of fact, we should be doing that with all of our close friends. Fourth, let us be a community that takes seriously and fights against the bullying and the gay jokes. I wonder, why is it that it's the public schools that is taking the banner and fighting against bullying, fighting against the gay jokes and the harassment? This should be the church. Why? Because we have the theology to back it, back it up. Why? Because it doesn't matter whether someone is tall or short, round or thin, dark or light, gay or straight. Every person is an image bearer of God. And that means they have respect and dignity. And if someone is demeaning another image bearer, as a image bearer myself, I must stand up for them. I must stand up for them. We should be in the forefront in fighting against bullying and gay jokes. And I think that probably among adults, you don't bully anymore. But I think that some of us or some of your friends might still say some gay jokes. And it might be funny for the moment, but I'm telling you, you never know. You never know when someone might be in earshot of that joke or even your best friend and their son or daughter just came out to them and that joke just confirmed, well, I'm definitely not bringing it up. Help our kids to expand their vocabulary a little bit. Instead of saying, that's so gay, you know, that shirt, that's so gay. A shirt can't be gay. <laughs> really. Instead of saying, that's so gay, how about that's so Baptist or that's a Presbyterian, you know, whatever. I'm sure you can think of something very, very creative. Convicted, consistent, compassionate. Lastly, we need to be complete. This is complete in our message, our full message, and we need to be complete in what we say. We can't just give people a partial message. We focus upon God's truth. Why? Because it's the truth that sets us free. So the question is, what is the truth when it comes to same-sex relationships? Oh, that's easy, people will say. It's a sin. True. But most people... Most Christians, what they do is they put a period after that sentence and they say nothing more. And you know that's equivalent to giving someone a one spiritual law tract? Have you guys heard of the four spiritual laws? Well, this is one spiritual law that goes something like this. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. Sorry. 
In case you didn't know, that's not good news. I mean, there's nothing good about that. But, you know, that's the message we have been giving to the gay community. You're a sinner. There's no hope for you. It's no wonder why the gay community want nothing to do with Christians. Because we have not been giving them the good news. We have been only telling them the bad news and nothing else. We have not been telling them the complete truth. We have been telling them an incomplete truth. And you know telling someone an incomplete truth can be just as harmful as telling someone a lie. So what is the complete truth? Well, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then he lists ten sins. Examples. In this list of ten sins are two words in the Greek that focus upon homosexual behavior. Oftentimes, people look at that list and they'll zero in on those two words and say, Look, Gays and lesbians won't inherit the kingdom of God. You know, when they do that, they conveniently forget about the eight other sins. Because if we look at all ten sins, none of us, none of us should inherit the kingdom of God. Bad news. But I'm so glad Paul didn't stop there. He didn't put a period after that sentence and that verse and say nothing more. Instead, you know what he says? This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Such Did you catch that? Were. Past tense. Some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. That, ladies and gentlemen, is not good news. That's amazing news. That's news that we can take to the bank. That's news that we can declare from the rooftop to anyone that needs to know about Jesus Jesus Christ. So our message must be redemptive. That's not an option. You're not sharing the gospel if you're not sharing the good news. You're not sharing anything good if all you're sharing is sin. You have to share the good news. Our message, if you're going to share the gospel, it's going to be redemptive. Because let me tell you, our friends in the gay community, our loved ones, your sons or daughters, your relatives in the gay community, their main problem. It's not their sexuality. Their main problem is to know and surrender to Jesus. You know, my biggest sin was not gay relationships. My biggest sin was unbelief. We need to make the core issue the core issue. We should never take peripheral issues and make them the core issue. The core issue is who is Jesus? And is he Lord? That is the answer and will always be the main thing. So I'm going to give you some practical things here before we jump into the Q&A. And how do we do this practically? How do we, how do we minister well? And, I, and, and we need to be careful not to conflate everyone into, into one group. Because you're going to have, you know, people and, and we're going to kind of minister differently. According to that question, who is Jesus to them? Are they surrendered to Jesus Christ? So first, how do, we minister, how, how do we minister to friends, Christian friends, who hold to biblical sexuality? No, pursuing same-sex relationships is not something that God would bless, but they themselves have same-sex attractions. How do we minister to them? That's kind of more mentoring discipleship. But how do we share Christ with our friends in the gay community? That's outreach and evangelism. Even, how about people who say, I'm gay and Christian? 
Well, I would put them in that second group because they're holding to not a true gospel, a distorted view of gospel and, and scripture and biblical sexuality. So we need to share the truth to them. So that's still outreach and evangelism. So let's go to the first group, Christians who have same-sex attractions. Let's just say after this weekend, you have one of your best friends calls you up and say, we got to talk. You go to their house or you meet them for coffee and they open up and share with you that they've been wrestling with issues of sexual identity for maybe the past 10 years. Do you know what to say or do? First, thank them. Thank them that they trusted you with this secret. It could be one of the hardest things that anyone ever had to do, open up, especially with another Christian friend. Second, tell them that that they're not alone. Tell them they're not alone, that you want to walk with them. Ask them, how does your faith play into this? Listen more than you talk and, and ask them more questions, open-ended questions. Don't jump to conclusions. Tell them that they're, that they're not alone because this is oftentimes Christians wrestling through this issue. They think that they have to go through all life, all, you know, life alone. That, or that's why they look elsewhere outside the church. I think the best place to be working through issues of sexual identity is in the church. Tell them that they're not alone. And be honest. I know some of you guys, I mean, you might be thinking, if that happens to me, I'm, I'm, I don't know what to say. Be honest. You can tell them, I, I'm not an expert at this. I, I don't know that much. But then say, but I want to learn. And I want to walk with you to Jesus. Those words could be life for them. Third, Help remind them that their identity needs to be in Christ. This was so key. For, I mean, this was maybe one of the most important things that I needed to learn. Why? Because I put my identity in my sexuality alone. You know, I mean, if you're taking notes, highlight this because I, I, I want us to kind of really get this. The one thing that I want you to learn is that we have made this who we are. If we think about sexuality, if we really kind of define it, We can't define sexuality apart from the word attractions. Sexuality, heterosexuality, homosexuality has to have, always defined by you're attracted to some of the opposite sex, you're attracted to some of the same sex. So it's attractions. Are attractions who we are? Think about that. I'll say it again. Are our attractions, what we feel, our desires, or even our thoughts, is that who we are? Sexuality is more about what we feel, what we do, what are our attractions. But, when we, but what, today in our world, when we talk about it, not only in the world outside the church, but even in the church, when we talk about this, do we talk about what a person feels or what a person does anymore? Your friend that's gay, do they talk about, this is what I do, this is what I feel? No. Instead, what are they saying? This is who I am. This subtle shift from what to who has created a distorted view of personhood. We are not our sexuality. It's a, it's, it's a part of our experience. It's a part of what we, what we kind of do feel and, and, and is part of, might be a part of our life, but it's not who we are. Don't walk around and say, hi, I'm straight. Who cares? <laughs> really, in light of eternity? You know what's most important? You know what does matter? Are you following Jesus or not? That's eternal. What you feel is not. It might feel eternal for now, but it's not. 
It's not. So put your identity in Christ, not in what we feel. I mean, if, if I can get 10 of you that really grasp this today, I'll be so happy. Because it's one of the hardest paradigms to break. Because we keep thinking, this is who you are. You know, so, so are you gay? I mean, I even get this now. People are like, are you, so, so are you gay or are you straight? No. I mean, even when we talk about homosexual, heterosexual, talk about this is not a heterosexual person. This is a person who has heterosexual feelings. Note the difference? Heterosexual modifies our experience, not person. Put your identity in Christ, not in what you feel. Boy, I mean, this applies to anything else. Don't put your identity in your job. Don't put your identity even in your addiction. Don't put your identity, even as a mother, put your identity in Christ first. The other things is what you do, and they could be important for you, yes, and they could be good things, but that's not who you are. Who you are is you're an image bearer of God. Fourth, be realistic. Don't give these false promises. You know, just read the Bible more, pray really, really hard, and you could pray away the gay. No, no. Yes, reading the Bible is very important, amen? Studying the Bible is very important, and praying is very, very important, right? I would not be here if my mother wasn't praying for me, right? I mean, just beside the fact that we're all commanded to pray, we need to pray. You know, I tell people, before there was ever a war room, my mother had her war room. As a matter of fact, the novelization of that movie was dedicated to my mother. So yes, we need to pray, but I don't pray and I don't read the Bible so that I don't have problems. I don't read the Bible and pray so that I won't be tempted. No, I read the Bible and pray so that when difficulties come, when I am tempted, I am firm enough on the rock of Jesus Christ so that I'm not wavering. That is why. We don't, I mean, as a matter of fact, it was easier before coming to Christ. Really. I had an urge, I did it. I had desire, I went for it. Now I have an enemy nipping at my heels and I have a heavenly father that I want to please. But you know the difference? is I have hope that's not of this world. My joy is not dependent upon my circumstances. That's the difference. Fourth, fifth, don't focus so much on the externals. You know, the way a person dresses, how they walk, how they talk. And it might make you even uncomfortable. You know, even some guys, they're like, I, you know, I just, just, he makes me kind of feel a little weird. How does God feel when he looks at our sin? I mean, can we look past that and maybe look at their heart? You know, we have this false idea of what man looks like in our culture. We think man looks like the rough guy, you know, you know, Marlboro Man or football player, which I don't know if you know this, but the first Marlboro Man is gay. So I don't know if you want to use that as your standard of masculinity. And, you know, because I think sometimes our view of masculinity is more culturally bound than anything else. Because if we took our American standard for masculinity, rough, tough, you know, cowboy, football player, and we imported that to, say, Asia, that wouldn't be masculine, that would be barbaric. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, and, and we look at Jesus, who was meek and gentle, and David, who was an incredible, you know, musician. So, don't focus so much on externals, because... I want to see change from the inside out. The gospel is about heart change. It's about heart surgery. And once that heart is changed, then it's going to change. But I don't want to see change from the outside in. It needs to be from the inside out. Sixth, 
encourage God-honoring same-sex friendships. Next to my putting my identity in Christ, in union with Christ, the next most important thing was being with other believers. And not just other believers, but especially for me, I needed to relearn how I'm supposed to have healthy, loving relationships with other men. I'll say that again. Healthy, loving relationships with other men. We are so afraid, men, to love other men. The way I read the Bible, it says, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. That doesn't say just love your wife, your spouse. Love your neighbor. That means love other men in the church. We have so distorted that love somehow equals sex. That's another thing. People are like, what's wrong with two people loving each other? Nothing. The Bible doesn't condemn love. He condemns sex outside of marriage. We should love does not. The world equates love with sex. Write that one down. Love does not equal sex. Also, love does not equal romance. Love is greater than that. It's beyond that. It's outside of that. So I need to relearn how I am truly called to love another man, to love other men in the church in God-honoring non-sexual ways. So really at the core, homosexuality, it's really a legitimate need. I think all of us were created to love one another, to love people of the same sex in healthy non-sexual ways, non-codependent, non-romantic ways. So really it's a legitimate need. It's only fulfilled in an illegitimate way. I think many sins are a legitimate need fulfilled in an illegitimate way. So can we help each other do that? So that's helping Christians who are struggling with same-sex attractions. How about then how do we share Christ with those in the gay community? Now, if you notice, I didn't really talk about transgenderism or gender identity. We could probably touch on that a little bit on the um, question and answer. But I threw that in here because I think many of these principles apply to how do we share Christ with not only our uh, gay friends, but also our transgender friends. First, this is what you should not do. Do not compare this with addiction, pedophilia, murder. That's not a good way to win people to Christ. <laughs> Second, don't use these two words, lifestyle or choice. Christians, we use that a lot. But people in the gay I never used those two words when I was in the gay community. Why? This wasn't who, what I chose. This, this was not my lifestyle. It was who I was. I had a false identity. I had the wrong identity. I put my identity in the wrong thing. And so if I don't want to, because sometimes using the words can be offensive to our friends. And I don't want to use a word that will trip them up for them to then not have an opportunity to build a relationship to share the gospel. Third, don't say the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin. You know, when you tell someone, I love you, but I hate your sin, they don't feel loved. <laughs> they just don't. So just don't say it. Just do it. Also, don't feel the need that you always have to debate with people. I mean, sometimes people, Christians feel like, if someone asks me a question, I have to give an answer. Jesus did not always answer their questions. I mean, if you look, most of the times when when the Pharisees, or they tried to corner him, or even the crowds asked him, especially when the Pharisees, he, he like totally didn't even answer their question. He gave a, the answer for another question. When the crowds asked him questions, how did, he, how did he respond? Parables. People were like, I don't know what that meant. The disciples had no clue. That's why when he pulled them aside... Because he knew that they were teachable, because he knew that they were willing to listen, he spoke plainly to them. So we need to use discernment. Sometimes you don't, just don't answer a question. Because what people want to do is they want to put you into this box of those right-wing bigots. Don't allow them to do that. 
If you answer just, oh, yes or no, whatever, then bam, you're in that box. I want to go deeper. What I would say, I mean, like if someone asks you, do you think this is sin? You know what I would say? I value our friendship more than debating all the time. I want to learn from you. Can we celebrate our similarities and tolerate our differences? Just leave it at that. We need to see when God begins working in their heart and softening their heart. Because when God does that and they ask you, hey, what does the Bible say? You have this open door to speak truth. But if you do it too soon, you could build up this wall and you never have the opportunity to share the gospel. So then what should you do? And I'm just going to finish with this. Pray. I, I already talked about this. My mother, we're not, I don't even, we're not even fasting enough. I think we've lost the discipline of fasting. Are we fasting? It doesn't even have to be food. Second, listen. If we want others to listen to us, we need to listen first. Well, what do I say? I don't know what to say. How about, how are you? Good place to start. How was your day? You can even ask them, you know, you know, how is your partner doing? I mean, that, just asking doesn't mean that we're affirming. And, and you can even, even dig deeper. What was it like when you grew up? Ask these, I mean, really, truly, when you ask, it shows that you do care. I want to know. You don't have to give your side commentary. You know, well, you know what I believe about that. <laughs> you can talk about that later. Listen. Third, be intentional. Don't be afraid to invite your gay neighbor over for dinner. Take him out for coffee. And I know people were going to think, if I do that, am I condoning their sin? Last time I checked, we usually have sinners over for dinner. Nothing new. Nothing new. You're just eating with them. Just eating. You're not sinning. Fourth, be patient and persistent. Don't treat this like a pet project. People can read right through that. People aren't projects. They're people. Be in it for the long haul. You know, for me to turn around in eight years is a short time. I know people who pray, who've been praying for decades. Lastly, be transparent. Share what the gospel is doing in your life. People can argue when you open up your Bible and you pull out your notes, they can begin arguing with you. And you can go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. But you know what they can't argue? The power of God in your own life. They can't argue with that. Share that. Be real. Talk about even the doubts that you have, the scars. People don't want perfect Christians. Be real. Share that. Talk about what God is doing in your life this week. Because let me tell you, none of us, if Jesus is your Lord, none of us should be the same as we were 10 years ago, 10 months ago, or even 10 weeks ago. You know, I would never consider the gospel if I didn't see the gospel lived out in my parents' lives. I wouldn't have picked up that Bible from the trash can, right? How crazy is that? Picking up the Bible from the trash can if I didn't see the Bible lived out in my father's life and my mother's life. I did not leave pursuing gay relationships. Because someone convinced me they were so bad. I didn't leave it because someone convinced me they were so harmful. I left it because I was shown something better. And his name is Jesus. Our job, my friends, as followers of Christ, is to show a dying world out there 
that no matter what they're clinging to, all the fool's gold in the world, job, career, money, even good things like family, spouse, children, no matter what they're clinging to, not only is Jesus better than all of that, but Jesus is best. So let us live our lives in a way that is unmistakable that not only is Jesus better, but Jesus is best. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for your faithfulness. Help us, God, to live in a way that is unmistakable, that the Jesus living in us, that nothing is greater than that. God, we love you, we praise you, and we ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus, the Messiah, and the people of God said.